Uh, I'm curious, does anyone here remember Herschel the sea lion from uh, back in the 80s? Back in, uh, back in the day, he and his buddies figured out they could score hundreds of pounds of fresh seafood a day just by parking their blubbery butts right in front of the fish ladder there at the Ballard Locks. The steelhead run <clears throat> in 1983 uh, was about 2,400 fish. But in 1984, after Herschel and company got busy, it was almost wiped out. Controversy swirled as wildlife officials tried harassing the sea lions to drive them off and tried trapping and relocating them, but they came back. And finally, literal court battles raged about whether sea lions, a protected species, should be shot to save Cedar River Chinook, another protected species. And part of the controversy was because Herschel is likely not the only cause of fish run depletion. Pollution, uh, habitat reduction, as well as human predation are likely factors. But back to Herschel for a moment. Why did he suddenly start this behavior when he did? Well, human hunting of sea lions in the early 20th century nearly wiped Herschel's ancestors out. So in 1972, the Marine Mammal Protection Act made it illegal to hunt them uh, in the Puget Sound area. So populations grew from around 5,000 in 1970 to over 300,000 in the mid-90s. Now, the only other control of sea lion population was also rendered ineffective. By the 1980s, orca whales were rarely seen uh, in that far south in Puget Sound. Why? Well, in a word, pollution. In addition, every salmon and steelhead trying to return to spawning grounds in Lake Washington streams, the Sammamish, Cedar, or Green River systems had only one three-foot-wide way in, the Ballard Fish Ladder with Herschel standing guard. You see, in 1916, when the locks were built, they lowered Lake Washington by nine feet. They just drained it. This dried up the natural outlet of Lake Washington, the Black River. Has anybody ever heard of that? It's because it doesn't exist anymore. We drained Lake Washington and eliminated it. It used to run right where, Puget, right where uh, the Boeing Renton plant is today. We just eliminated a river. So now there's only one way for the fish to enter. Do you see the domino effect here? In an effort to enhance trade, we used technology to change the entire Lake Washington watershed. We polluted Puget Sound with enough chemicals to drive off killer whales. We hunted uh, sea lions to the point that we passed laws to stop ourselves. And this leads us to the brink of losing dozens of salmon runs, requiring us to close down fishing altogether in some areas. What a mess this is. This is just one relatively small local story in a world full of such stories, illustrating how our use of technology can wreck God's creation. So clearly with this story, the answer is we never build locks or dams, right? We can never use chemicals again. No more hunting, no more fishing, progress, or fun. That's the solution. Well, no, that's not it. But maybe we can look at the missing piece in the Herschel salmon debacle. It's the sinful human heart that drives all of this. Yes, sin behind our ecology, right? Stay with me. There are three propositions I'd like to place before you that come directly from the Bible and set the stage for not just defining how our sinful hearts begin these problems, but how we can counteract them too. Proposition number one comes from Romans chapter 8. 
And we're uh, given enough time in extended, we're going to cover that more in detail if you're interested. So stick around. But let's take Romans chapter 8 at verse 22. Paul says this, We know that the whole creation, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. I would summarize it as this. Proposition one. We are not airlifted out of a fallen creation. We are the caretakers who live inside it. And we're given special responsibilities and benefits until the day it is made new. Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Behold, I make all things new. He doesn't say, I make all new things. He makes all things new. And this should change the way we view our world, shouldn't it? I mean, maybe you've heard of the example. that This has occurred all over the world, but there was one in particular, and frankly, I don't recall where it was, in North America of a town that existed in a place where they were going to build a dam. And when the dam created the lake, that town was going to be wiped out, right? So they, you know, whatever, paid the people to move, and the, the plan was five years from now, the t- town's going to be wiped out. And guess what happened? They stopped mowing their lawns, they stopped painting their fences, they stopped taking care of it, and the place, excuse me, went to hell. It just went, it was awful, and it was a terrible place to live. Now, I, I want you to contrast that with, imagine that same town, but instead of getting news that a dam was coming, there's, hey, a big mall is being put in, or we discovered gold just down the street. What's going to happen? How are people going to start to behave with their town at that point? It's going to be very different, isn't it? It all depends on how you see the future outcome. Second proposition. We have a unique role to play in the created order. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27 say, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. In our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all of the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Chapter 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. You see that work of art, the third frame there toward the back? We've had a different frame representing each of our weeks in the series. When you get a minute, go take a look at that. That's an artistic representation of that. Genesis 2, verse 7. God pulling man from the dust of the earth and his breath coming into his nostrils. Verse 19 goes on to say, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. We are made from the same stuff as all the other animals. You know that? We have the same basic building. And science affirms this. We're made from the same stuff. But we were given a unique role. We were to name them, to steward them, to take care of them, to rule over them. Genesis 3 then goes on to explain how the desire to be our own God brought sin and decay into the world. How the dominoes started to fall. And that eventually leads us back to Romans 8, where God provides a way back to Genesis, a way back to the garden, for all of creation. I like to describe it this way. Christians are not innocent victims of the creation, nor are we consumers of it. We are rehabilitated caretakers. Proposition 3. Back to Romans 8. Verse 6. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. 
The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. I'd summarize it this way. The created order is a lot bigger than we think it is. For example, suffering in creation doesn't just come from hurricanes, cancer, and toothaches. It's also contained in lying, violence, and greed. It's about all of those things together. It's all one thing, a fallen universe. It's all connected. The law of sin and death that we read about here in Romans, that we'll explore later and extend it, is a part of a now fallen creation. There are secret little sinful impulses within us, our flesh, as Paul would describe it, that are connected to us physically. The impulse to take what doesn't belong to you or extract sexual gratification from someone is no less a part of fallen creation than a cold virus or the Nepalese earthquake. Speaking of that, let's, let's take a look at that a moment for a moment, this earthquake in Nepal. Why did 8,000 humans die last month in an earthquake? Largely because of shoddy construction. Well, why is it shoddy? Well, it's a terribly poor country. They can't afford good construction. Well, why is it so poor? Well, there are only a few low-wage manufacturing jobs for too many people. Well, why is that the case? Well, companies go there because they can pay tiny wages to people who are grateful to get anything. Well, why would companies do that? to keep prices low. Why do they want to keep prices low? So we will buy their products. Now hear me, neighbors. I may be a hypocrite, but I'm not a hypocrite about this. I have no idea where my wife bought this shirt and never mind where it was made, okay? My point is not to guilt you into some ridiculous lifestyle where you worry about every single purchase you make. I'm going to do that later in the sermon. But I do, kidding, this is a joke, but I do want you to see the creation as big and intimately connected with the choices that we make. Deaths in Asia are directly connected to the Walmart bargain bin. And this was exactly Paul's point in Romans chapter 8. If we rightly see that we are inexorably woven into a fallen creation, that there is no way that we can feed our own children without a child somewhere else going hungry, if we start to understand that, then we will turn to heaven along with Paul and we will cry out, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how we get to that saving understanding. Is when we begin to understand, it's jacked up, neighbors, and we're part of it. There's no way out except Jesus. You see, a big problem with Western society is not so much that our sin goes unpunished and that we live free of direct consequences, though that is largely the case, but it's that we don't connect ourselves, including our sin, to the rest of creation. We've narrowed our definition of the creation. We've dissected it, reduced it, boiled it down, and dis, uh, disassembled it. It's called reductionism. We don't recognize it as a whole thing anymore, the way it was created to be. Work is somehow separate from our food. Relationships are separate from our time. Love is separate from our morality. But it's all creation. It's not just baby sea otters and old growth forests and global warming. 
That's not the only part of creation. In fact, I would say radical environmentalists are thinking way too small. Many of them reject the idea of human sin, which ironically is what drives so much of the things they decry. And scientists are thinking too small as well. Astronomers who gaze back into time to the forming of galaxies with tools like the Hubble Space Telescope, which is a pretty spiffy bit of technology, have made the universe smaller, but not necessarily better understood because they tend to reject the Creator who is at the back of all of this. Paul, again, this time in Romans chapter 1, says this in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His internal eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. We see Him everywhere. So, let's go back. These three biblical propositions, then, lead us to a conclusion. The ultimate destiny of the universe is entirely in God's just and loving hands. But until the day of the Lord, we are called to steward it. You take those three propositions, therefore, this conclusion. And friends, currently, we are doing our job badly. And we can either use technology to change that, or we can make it worse. And if there's one thing I hope we've learned from all three weeks in this series, it's that technology is amoral. We learned that a computer can be used to draw us closer to God or draw us away. Our cell phones can either connect us to each other or pull us apart. And it's no different with creation. We can use plastic to replace rare, naturally occurring materials, thereby preserving them, or we can pollute entire ecosystems with it. It depends on what we choose. So with the time we have left, I'd like to move from proposition through conclusion to application. The question becomes... How now shall we live? What do we do with this? Well, there's a part of me that would very much like to just give you a list of technologies, behaviors, and practices that you shouldn't do anymore, ever. And that part of me would ironically get a little preachy. (laughs) See what I did there? Uh, And and I would tell you to abandon your gas-guzzling Durango and buy a bike. You know, to stop shopping at Walmart. And get your groceries at the Marysville Farmer's Market. Now, wait a minute. I am telling you to do that. Marysville Farmer's Market, starting June 27th. Yay, that's coming. So go do that. Yes, I am telling you that. Or, you know, I'd want to tell you to make sure you're collecting rainwater from your gutters to water your garden and, and, you know, to to do all solar panels need to go on your house. And and all that stuff would be awesome. But the part of me that acts more like Jesus (laughs) would instead... Just draw your attention to four areas where we're failing as stewards. Give you some examples and then just trust you to prayerfully consider how you could be living, not in light of what I or anyone else nags you about, but in light of what God has revealed through his word. That's our authority, right? All right, so four ways I think we're we're messing it up. First, we're revising God's creation. We're revising it. You could call this globalization versus localization. Now, humans have traditionally been dissatisfied with the shape and scale of creation. We tend to want to, uh, we want more of everything. We want to move it around. We want to remodel creation in a way that suits us better. An example is we tend to always want to make things bigger, especially in the West. Bigger, better, faster, more. According to the American Independent Business Alliance, 
Out of every dollar you spend at a national chain store, only 13.6 cents of that dollar stays in the town to be spent on roads, schools, and in other businesses and charities. As opposed to 48 cents of every dollar you spend in a locally owned and operated business. Now that means you, when you spend a dollar at Home Depot, 86.4 cents of it leaves Marysville never to return to be spent somewhere else in the world. Now just imagine what would happen if instead of dollars, we were talking about air. Imagine Marysville was under a big plastic bubble and there's only so much air inside of it. Then imagine that every time you walked into Kohl's or Olive Garden, you brought in a big balloon of air with you and 90% of that air was sucked out, not to be replaced. Gone. How often would you do that? How often would you choose that? At least, how conscious would you be of doing that? That's the more important thing. You see, large national and global chains can do business like this, in part because of how they deploy technology. These businesses use information and media technology to connect stores in, what do we call them? Chains. Advanced transportation, marketing, communications, and inventory systems allow them to lower prices and increase selection beyond what small local businesses can do. And they can therefore extract a lot more money from our towns. But on the other hand, technologies like social networking and web-based information can help local businesses compete by communicating directly with customers, customizing services, networking with local businesses, and reducing overhead. And here's why this matters to good creation stewardship. When we keep our money at home, rather than building huge global networks, remember, bigger, not only do we save countless gallons of fuel from reduced shipping and employee commuter miles, we have to build and drive fewer trucks, spray less pesticides on huge crops of corn to feed global fast food chains, and we get to know our neighbors who own and operate these businesses and restaurants as well. And when you add this up, these are enormous environmental benefits from doing business locally. Now, on the other hand, and this is important to note, some business absolutely makes more environmental sense if you stay with the big guys. It makes more sense to do that in some cases. But the point is to think about the creation impact when you choose where to buy your next head of lettuce or your next car. Think about the creation impact. Second area restraining God's creation. Now, we humans um, also tend to find parts of the created order, well, limiting to our likes. Nature does things to us that, well, we don't approve of. It makes us fat when we eat processed foods and refuse to work out. It makes us old over time. The sun dries us out, the wind toughens our skin, and we don't like it. So we try to restrain it. Last year, the, uh, the charities Stand Up to Cancer, the Susan G. Komen Foundation, the Lust Garden Foundation, and the National Cancer Institute spent $5.1 billion on cancer research combined. At the same time in this country, we spent $14.6 billion on elective cosmetic surgery. Three times the amount. Now remember, nature is fallen. Cancer sucks. Birth defects, broken bones, malaria, and the common cold should be restrained and resisted. I am not suggesting that all natural processes are equally good. What I am suggesting is that there are natural processes which we resist for sinful reasons. 
We restrain aging because we are vain. We restrain the weather with air-conditioned everything because we're lazy. We restrain salmon migrations to power our game consoles and hair straighteners because we're self-involved. But imagine what could be done if we redeployed those technological efforts to restrain human suffering and disease. Look at the use of technology in your own life through the lens of restraining the created order. Where are you spending time, money, and natural resources in an effort to hold back nature? What if planners stopped placing buildings and sometimes whole cities on top of fault lines, in the center of flood zones, or the path of wildfires? I learned from an AC3 last night that the the emergency defense systems, uh, the kind of the civil defense headquarters for Northern California in Hayward is built on top of the San Andreas Fault. Right? What can we do with the money saved from no longer needed dikes, dams, and flood insurance? What if we deployed GPS mapping and advanced data collection to avoid building in slide zones rather than designing retaining walls and escape routes? Third thing, resisting. 85% of the cost to produce a pound of commercial fertilizer comes from, are you ready? Natural gas. 85%. The hydrogen needed to make most chemical fertilizers fertile, it comes from gas. But what if we could get nitrogen for free, like out of the air? We can. It's called clover. The stuff that you're constantly resisting and battling in your lawn is day and night working to pull free nitrogen out of the air and store it in its roots where your beloved grass can use it. Clover is one of a family of plants with a unique ability called nitrogen fixation. It's also uh, drought-resistant, prolific, it attracts beneficial insects, and it's beautiful. But most American gardeners kill it and buy chemical nitrogen made by burning natural gas a large percentage of which washes into streams and lakes before ever getting used by your lawn and thereby accumulating in the water, reducing oxygen levels, sickening fish, and causing enormous algae blooms. Did you know that the lowly red alder tree, often trampled, burned, ignored, or cursed by Puget Sound gardeners, actually produces 600 pounds of usable nitrogen per acre per year, just sucking it out of the air? For free. Like God designed it that way. Here's another one. Uh, A recent study at Sweden's University of Gothenburg indicates that some parents' resistance to letting their kids come in contact with germs might actually be making them sicker. Come on. How many of you have thought about this before? You have, right? Now we got some science that says we're probably right. Here's an NPR report that, that quotes the study. The report says, Findings... Uh, The findings are the latest to support the hygiene hypothesis, a still-evolving proposition that's been gathering uh, momentum in recent years. The hypothesis basically suggests that people in developed countries are growing up way too clean because of a variety of trends, including the use of hand sanitizers and detergents and spending too little time around animals. As a result, Children don't tend to be exposed to as many bacteria and other microorganisms, and maybe that deprives their immune system of the chance to be trained to recognize microbial friend from foe. Basically, the study found that children in households which use dishwashing machines 
eliminating even beneficial bacteria from the dishes, had more cases of asthma, hay fever, and eczema than their counterparts in houses where they hand-washed the dishes. Fascinating. You see, we use technology to resist God's design specifications, and guess what? It might just be making us sick and the next generation's weaker. We could use the natural gas being burned to make fertilizer for so many other things. We could worry less about precious little Junior eating food off the floor. But part of our fallen nature, our effort to be our own God, is to resist the processes that the real God has laid out to benefit us. Now, I'm not saying that everyone should turn their lawns into a clover patch or that we should start using dirt for pizza toppings. But, (laughs) to each his own. But I am suggesting that you consider where you might be using technology to resist a God-designed process that was meant to bless you. Finally, number four, ravaging. I call this fracking versus sunshine. There are lots of examples of humans ravaging the planet. There are acres of rainforests being depleted, fisheries that are pushed to extinction, water pollution, soil erosion, you name it. But they all share the common root cause of humans extracting from the rest of creation without putting back. Fracking, for example, is short for hydraulic fracturing, the practice of breaking up deep rock structures which contain oil by pumping water in and then extracting the oil or gas. In 2010, it is estimated that 140 billion gallons of water were mixed with chemicals and pumped into fracking wells to extract oil. This contaminated water, no longer usable for anything else, is sucked out and then pumped back into the ground in what are called disposal wells. The United States Geological Survey has released a report with some alarming conclusions about this practice. This is from the USGS, quote, Between the years 1973 and 2008, there was an average of 21 earthquakes of magnitude 3 or larger in the central and eastern United States. 21 per year. In 2014 alone, there were 659 magnitude magnitude 3 earthquakes in that same area. Quote, the increase in seismicity has been found to coincide with the injection of wastewater in deep disposal wells in several locations, including Colorado, Texas, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Ohio. Friends, we are, these are man-made earthquakes. Now, the oil extracted by this process is more expensive. It's actually causing earthquakes. And we're wasting huge amounts of water. So why are we going to the trouble and all this danger? Because we're running out of oil and we're largely unwilling to consider life with less. Again, from the United States government, here you see it. We've been running out of oil for 40 years. And the only reason you see that slight increase there at the end in the red part is just a projection of what it might look like in the future. And notice it doesn't last. But the only reason we see that increase is because of potentially dangerous and expensive practices like fracking that we've turned to in desperation over the last decade or so. Now, whether you think this is alarmist or not, nobody thinks that oil is an unlimited. It's a fixed resource. And I am not suggesting in the least that fossil fuels are bad. They are a technology like any other. But they are limited. 
Think of oil, coal, and natural gas like a retirement account, a fixed income. If you have $20,000 earning you 10% interest every month, and you depend on that $2,000 to live on, how likely are you to just start draining that $20,000 away? Not very. Do you start thinking of that $20,000 as somehow bad? No, it's good. It's a gift. In fact, if you see it as the limited resource it is, what are you going to do? You are going to wisely steward that resource. Not ravage it. But that is not what we're doing with fossil fuels. There are clean, renewable energy sources like solar available to us which will help reduce oil demand. There are choices we can make to reduce oil consumption, preserving the valuable, God-given, but limited resource that we're left with. Think of how many gallons of oil will be burned by the 18 extra trains per day passing through Marysville from Midwest fracking operations, carrying tankers full of coal and oil, which will be loaded onto ships, which burn oil, that haul it to fertilizer factories, who then ship that fertilizer in trucks, which burn oil, to farmers who will spread it with more oil-burning equipment back in the Midwest cornfield sitting atop the place where the oil came from. Or we could just plant clover. Okay, friends, hear me now on this. And I've saved this for the end so I can make this perfectly clear. My fear is that you will walk out of here thinking that I've just made a political speech. Or that I'm saying, well, if you really love Jesus, you're going to sell that four-mile-per-gallon planet-wrecking Durango, and you're going to buy a gluten-powered, you know, solar-powered vegan mini-scooter. Right? No. That is not what I'm saying. But there are realistic changes all of us should be considering based on what we have learned today from science and through this whole series from God's Word. You see, this is not a political issue. This is a moral issue. And there are some political issues that are first moral issues. Christians talk about marriage and abortion not because they're first parts of a political platform. We don't take our cues from politics on those. We take our cues from Genesis. This is no different. See, technology is not evil. Technology is not good. Our motives, however, that gets questionable. Our technologies will be deployed either to draw us closer to God or to to create barriers. It's the same for community. Technology will either build the church or tear it apart. And when it comes to creation, I'm asking you, AC3, examine how how you're deploying technology onto creation. Be mindful. Are you deploying technology on creation as a means to revise it to your liking? To restrain it from its divinely designed potential? To resist its influence and even its blessings? And to ravage it? playing God in a universe where we are clearly not the God? Or do we use technology as a means to preserve and steward every aspect of this, albeit fallen, but amazing garden, to hold it as a deposit for the coming day when God restores all, bringing us back again 
to a new Eden where we are at one with the world, at one with each other, and at one with the creation. Let's pray. Creator God, um, I will boldly speak for us as a church. We repent of our sin, the original sin of thinking that we're God. It just goes back to the beginning. And in our delusional godness, we have we've tried to remodel. We've tried to resist. We've ravaged. We've committed all kinds of sin. We've ravaged each other. We've ravaged our own hearts. We've ravaged your name. We've ravaged the mountains and the oceans. All of it. God, forgive us. And through your Spirit, guide us to be good stewards of all of this, Lord. To use the technology that you've also gifted us with to build your kingdom and not to tear it apart. God, thank you for your grace, for the mercy that you've given us, that we have a way out. Lord, show us that way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Well, thanks for being with us here, friends. We are going to take just a five-minute break, and then you've got time to get your kids checked in, uh, grab a cup of coffee.